Good morning, everyone. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm James Baker, one of your elders here at Cornerstone. It's truly an honour and a privilege to be able to bring you God's Word today. I encourage you to follow through this passage with me, either in your Bibles or in the printout in the corner post. Now, in pretty much every aspect of our lives, we're under authority. Each time we get into our cars, we're under the authority of the transport police. Many of us have a boss that we report to. All of your kids and teens are under the authority of your parents. Wives are under the authority of their husbands. Ultimately, every one of us is under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of these authorities are easy for us to obey. Others, not so much. It's easy to obey strong leaders who live virtuous lives and serve our communities. It's easy to obey a good boss who is wise and makes good decisions in the interest of the organisation and all of its employees. It's not so easy to obey a boss that you think is making bad decisions, when you think that you can do a better job yourself. A political leader whose policies you don't agree with. A parent who doesn't let you do the things that you want to do. A husband whose flaws you see on a daily basis. So how do we go with obeying authorities? We read in Romans 13 that we are subject to our governing authorities, as they've been established by God. Let me ask you, have you ever got a speeding fine? Have you, uh, have you ever used your mobile phone while you're driving? Have you ever obeyed any of the other authorities over you? So while we might get a D on our report card when it comes to obeying authority, there is one man who truly understands what authority means. This is our centurion in Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13. So before we get started on this passage, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are our great almighty King. You are over all creation, yet you are a personal God that is present for us. We thank you that we can meet together this day. As we turn to your word, we pray that you may open up our hearts and our minds, that you may speak directly to each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our passage today, we're introduced to the man who amazed Jesus. The one man who understood Jesus' ultimate authority over all things. To properly understand this passage, we need to go back in time about 2,000 years to learn about this little village on the Sea of Galilee. The encounter occurs in Capernaum, the hometown of Matthew the tax collector, and the location where Jesus spent much of his earthly ministry. It was a small fishing village of about 1,500 people. 
For a village this small, it's likely that there was only one sentry or a unit of 100 soldiers with our centurion as its leader. So this would have made him the most powerful representative of Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. We know from historical records that our centurion was almost certainly a Gentile. The Jews were exempt from uh, Roman military service and the army was composed of non-Jewish Roman subjects from the surrounding areas. To arrive at the position of centurion means that he has distinguished himself within the brutal Roman army. He's not just some bureaucrat. The centurion has got to the position that he's in by proving himself on the battlefield. He's been tested and he's demonstrated himself to be intelligent, loyal and brave. He is a battle-hardened leader and his soldiers would obey him even if it meant going to their own death. And likewise, he would obey the authorities over him, even if it meant going to his own death. The centurion would have been responsible for maintaining law and order, and in particular, collecting taxes and overseeing executions. So this made the Roman soldiers deeply unpopular among the Jewish population. However, we learn from Luke's account in Luke 7 that our centurion loved the Jewish people and he was loved by them in return. It appears that he might have been a Jewish convert, even building a synagogue for them in Capernaum. So the centurion is not typical for his culture. He's not corrupt and he doesn't show contempt for the Jewish people like the other Roman soldiers. But is this enough to explain Jesus' response in verse 10? Jesus announces, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Absolutely not. As I'll show you, this response is no reflection on how good a person the centurion was. In our passage, the centurion comes to Jesus in great distress. We see in verses 5 and 6 that his servant is paralysed and he's suffering greatly. At that time, there was no hope for a medical cure for the, for the servant. And he was, almost, he was certain to die. Despite the centurion's wealth and power, he was completely helpless to save his servant. The centurion knows that there's only one hope for his servant, Jesus, the one who has authority over all things. Now, Jesus sees something in this centurion that amazes him. I had to do a little bit of research to understand what this word in the Bible, amaze, really meant. So the Greek word that's used here for amazed, thomazo, is used. In many places in the Bible, 
it's used to describe people being amazed by Jesus. And this is only one of two occasions when it's used to describe Jesus being amazed by a person. The other time is in Mark 6.6, 6, when Jesus has been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. And, he, and it, it was written, he was amazed by their lack of faith. So you might be wondering, how is it possible that a man can amaze Jesus? This centurion's faith surpasses that of Jesus' own disciples who have witnessed his many miracles firsthand. It surpasses the faith of the teachers of the law who have dedicated their lives to studying the scriptures. It surpasses the faith of all the Jews. Jesus tells us this in, in our passage. He hasn't seen a single person with such faith as this centurion. Now, imagine that you're one of Jesus' disciples on this day. Jesus wasn't addressing the centurion. No, he was addressing his own followers. He is stating to them that this sort of faith doesn't exist among them. How would you respond to this rebuke from Jesus? The Israelites had all the benefits to possess this faith. They had the Old Testament. God had rescued them out of Egypt. He protected them from their enemies. Jesus' disciples had witnessed all of his miracles firsthand. Yet despite this, none of them had this simple faith of this centurion. At this point, it would be easy for us to build up this centurion to be some kind of super-Christian. But this would be for us to miss the point of the passage. The point of this past story is not to show us how great the centurion is, but rather to show us who Jesus is. The centurion knew who Jesus was. He was the one with the authority from God to heal his servant just by speaking a word. What an indictment upon Israel. These are the descendants of Abraham, the man God promised to make into a great nation. What was, the wrong, what was wrong with the people of Israel that Jesus couldn't find this faith among his own people, but that he could only find it in a Gentile Roman soldier. Despite all of the benefits that God had given to Israel, they're held back by their own hardness of heart. So this poses two important questions for us. First, what did this Roman soldier see that Israel did not? And second, why is this so important to us? So our first question, what did this Roman soldier see that Israel did not? This centurion had a far clearer understanding of authority than most of us have and that the Jews did in his day. Authority was no abstract concept to him. Like all Roman soldiers, this 
was a matter of life and death. So in Australia, we've got a way of being pretty casual with our use of language. For example, we might say that last night that Collingwood were decimated by Sydney. So sorry to any Collingwood fans here. Um, but our, our centurion understands. Our flippant use of language, we're describing here one of the most serious punishments that a Roman soldier could face. You see, in their society, for a Roman soldier, disobeying authority was one of the most serious crimes that they could commit. Whether this be cowardice, mutiny, desertion, insubordination, among other failures to obey authority. So under this punishment, the unit of soldiers would be divided by tens and forced to draw lots. The soldier that drew the short straw would then be executed by his nine comrades, either by clubbing or stoning or stabbing. Now I ask you, what would be your, your attitude towards authority if your lives were at stake? Our centurion really understands what it means to obey authority. So please join with me now in reading the words of the centurion from verses 8 and 9. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion is both an authority over his soldiers and under the authority of his superior officers. As he describes to Jesus, when he gives an order, there's no grumbling, there's no refusal. What the centurion orders is done. Unlike the Jews, he recognises that Jesus is the authority over all creation. Just like the centurion commands his soldiers and it is done, Jesus just needs to say the word and creation will obey. In this case, he knows that Jesus can perform a miraculous healing of his servant. Jesus is an authority over all creation and like the centurion, he is also under authority that of God the Father, who he obeys perfectly. The centurion recognised the divinity of Jesus and he puts his trust in him. And this leads us to our second question. Why is all of this important to us? So why is this important to us? Jesus' response here means everything to us. Our eternal destinies depend on it. We aren't Jews. We are the many from the East and the West. Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth. And he is taking us to this royal banquet of honour in heaven. Jesus has the authority 
to invite people into the banquet from outside. He also has the authority to throw out those already at the banquet. Now today, when we want to show our friendship to someone, how might we go about this? We might invite them around to our house for a meal, right? And this was the case in Jesus' day as well. But they took uh, hospitality much more seriously than we do. To invite someone into your house in this culture was a deeply intimate act. I want to unpack this a bit, just for us to understand the significance of this. There was a great religious symbolism to eating with, with people. The dining table was a place to be kept holy and pure. However, in Jesus' day, it was common in the surrounding Gentile communities for them to sacrifice food to their pagan gods. Now, the Pharisees get a pretty bad rap, and often rightly so, but they were also deeply concerned with maintaining holiness. For over 200 years, they had taught the Jewish people that mealtimes must be kept holy by excluding Gentiles. This law is why God must appear to Peter in a vision in Acts 10 to assure him that it is in fact proper for him to visit the house of another centurion, Cornelius. So if the Jews were forbidden from having a common meal with Gentiles, we can only imagine what the response would be to Jesus' words in verses 11 and 12. The symbol of a messianic banquet is used here to show his followers who they will see in heaven and who they will not. So please join with me in reading Jesus' words in verses 11 and 12. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the, of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be surprises in heaven. There will be people in heaven that we don't expect to see there. There will be others that we're sure that we'll see there who will be sadly missed. In these verses, Jesus isn't addressing the centurion. He is addressing his followers. As first century Jews, they had grown up being taught that they were God's chosen people and that being the biological descendants of Abraham would get them into heaven. Now today, we might think that our place in heaven is assured because we come to church every Sunday and because we do good works. Jesus presents us with two alternatives. Either we'll take a place of honour at the banquet in the kingdom of heaven with many that we don't expect to see there, or we face the horrible punishment of being thrown outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who will be honoured at the messianic banquet and those who will be thrown outside differ in one important area. Whether they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and put their faith in him.
Jesus shows us his compassion for those who approach him with a humble faith. As predicted by the centurion, Jesus only needs to say the words, go, let it be done, just as you believed it would, and his servant is instantly healed. To sum up the responses to these two questions, why did the centurion, and what did the centurion see that Jesus' disciples didn't? The centurion understood Jesus' authority over all things. And why is this important to us? It's because our entrance into heaven is through faith in Jesus alone. So now, how does this story of the centurion apply to our lives in Hobart in 2021? This story of the centurion is an inspiring uh, tale of saving faith. But more than a story of this one man, though, we get an insight into who Jesus is and his compassion upon those who have faith in him. Applying this to our own lives, we can ask ourselves two questions. What is saving faith? And how does it point us to minister the good news of salvation through faith to those around us? So first, what is saving faith? What does it look like? How do we know if we have it or if we don't? Let's start with what it's not. Saving faith is not blindly following something when reason and logic show it to be wrong. This centurion was no fool. To get to the position that he was in required to him to be a great judge of character. In our passage, the centurion is contrasted against the Israelites, including Jesus' own followers. They trust in Jesus and keeping the law. In Jesus and good works. These half measures don't cut it with the centurion though. On the battlefield, if you, uh, you can't half trust the soldier beside you. No, you must trust him completely or both of you will be destroyed. The centurion's discernment is in recognising that Jesus is worthy of his absolute trust. What can be more relevant to us today? In Australia, we're taught to have faith in ourselves, to earn what we desire, to take control of our destinies. Is this compatible with having a faith like this centurion? When we see what this centurion sees, we see that living life in our own strength is foolishness. All things are to be referred to Jesus. Our families and friends, how we use our time and our money, our ambitions and our desires. Faith like the centurion is to recognise Jesus' authority over all things and to commit our time, our gifts and our resources to his will. This is saving faith. 
when it comes to Jesus' authority, do we submit to him or do we look for our own fix? We're not going to find a better boss than Jesus. But how do we go with submitting our will to his? Do we follow the instructions of scripture or do we follow our own hearts, even when what's in our own hearts is sinful? In our passage, we get the example of the centurion's faith. And we also learn directly from Jesus that there will be many more like him in the kingdom. This leads us on to our second application. The second application is to draw us towards the Great Commission. Jesus doesn't say that there will be some like the centurion in the kingdom of heaven. He says that there will be many. When God promises Abraham in Genesis to give him many descendants that will become great nations, the Jews understand that this promise is to them alone. But this has nothing to do with bloodline or heritage. It has everything to do with faith. The centurion is one of many from outside of Israel to enter into the kingdom of heaven. God's people aren't just sitting here today among us. They're out in our community and they're scattered across the world. Many of them waiting for someone to bring them God's word. The authority that the centurion sees in Jesus uh, is declared by Jesus himself in Matthew 28. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the authority that the centurion saw in Jesus that those around him didn't understand. Just like the centurion has a delegated authority, we have a delegated authority from Jesus to go out and make disciples. Do you believe this? It's written here plain as day in the scriptures. This is the power of God to save. Jesus came for all mankind. Brothers and sisters, this passage isn't just the story of a man. As impressive as a centurion may be, and as impressive as Jesus' response to him is, a centurion is still just a sinner like us, in need of a saviour. This is the story of our wonderful Lord Jesus. He is the one with authority over all things. The one who can command all of creation to obey him. He is the one who decides who sits at a place of honour in this banquet in the kingdom of heaven and who will be thrown out. Not one of us here today is worthy of sitting at this banquet. We're all sinners deserving to be cast out into eternal punishment. 
the good news for all of us of the gospel is that through Christ we are made worthy. He is the mighty king over all creation. He has authority and is free from sin. Yet he became man. He suffered and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The price to be paid for that unclean Roman officer and today for unclean Gentiles in Tasmania. The price to be paid that we may be counted as worthy to attend this most holy of tables. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, all praise and glory be to you. Lord, you know our thoughts and our hearts. You know that what we desire is from this world and not what's from you. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus that we may be saved, that we may be at this wonderful banquet in heaven. I pray for all of those here who don't know you yet. Lord, that you may reveal yourself to them, that they may be put their trust in Jesus. Like the centurion's servant, you are the only one who can save us. Father, give us faith like that of this centurion, a faith that recognises Jesus' authority over all things, a faith that submits our lives to his will. We pray in Jesus' name.